I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, that's what we're going to talk about this morning, that chorus of uh, that song the band just sang, All is Forgiven. Uh, very exciting stuff. So, uh, if you don't know, if you're new here today or haven't been here for the past few months, we're in a sermon series in the book of Zechariah. And so Zechariah is an Old Testament prophet written about 500 years before Jesus. It's one of the last books of the Old Testament. And it's in a very uh, unique genre. Not a lot of books of the Bible are written in this genre. Uh, the genre of pr uh, prophetic writing or Zechariah has a lot of uh, apocalyptic type uh, writing and, and prophecy visions that we're going to see. Kind of similar to the book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible if you're familiar with that. And we're actually going to be looking at that a little bit today to help us understand uh, Zechariah. So today in this uh, book that's written in an apocalyptic or a, a prophetic type genre, we're going to see lots of really strange and confusing imagery, yet imagery that's very powerful and prophetic at the same time. So if you're visiting, or maybe, maybe you're not visiting, you just, you just wondered this question, why does Hiawatha preach through books of the Bible like this? Why, why did we pick Zechariah? If there's books of the Bible that are much more clear about what's, what the gospel is about or about salvation history, why don't we just stick to them? Why are we going through a very confusing, challenging uh, book like Zechariah? And those, that's a great question. And uh, just so you know why, why we picked this, it's not just to uh, confuse us. It's not just to uh, try something new. But rather, we have intentional, deliberate reasons why we preach uh, through books of the Bible and why we chose Zechariah. A few reasons. First one is we want to preach all of the Bible. We really do believe that this entire thing is inspired by God. And that he's saying the same thing. He's telling the same story of his salvation through Jesus Christ in, in many different genres and in many different ways. And so there'll, there'll be parts of the Bible where we, we hear it explicitly said, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We see that explicitly written out like that. And then we also see it played out in narratives in other parts of the Bible. Or we see it today, we're going to see it prophetically and, and kind of apocalyptically shown through a vision. And so we believe this, this whole book is uh, all inspired by God, all written about the same salvation that God is offering uh, mankind. And he does so through veiled ways, through ways that are, that are more confusing, more shadowed, we might say sometimes, in different parts of the Bible. But we still believe that all of the Bible points to Jesus Christ and his good news, his gospel. And so actually, in Hiawatha's history, we'll preach through uh, nine books of the Old Testament and nine books of the New Testament in our 10 years of history as a church because we really believe that the Bible is one story just written in multiple genres to give us multiple angles at the same good news. So number two, the, the second reason we do this, similarly, we want, a help, we want to help each other. We want to help our church know how to interpret and understand and read the Bible. So not just more clearer passages or clearer books of the Bible, but the entire scripture. So we want to demonstrate and model how to do this, and then hopefully we get a chance to go home and begin to read our Bibles like that with our, with our roommates, with our community group, with our families. And then finally, on a very just practical level, we have all different kinds of learners here in this room. We have people that really like story. We have people that really like just explicit, lay it out for me in a nice little... Uh, outline here. We have other people that really appreciate things like the book of Zechariah, where the same truths are told to us via dream, via 
vision or something that's a little more confusing or more poetic or more uh, like a picture or a symbol. And the beauty of, of this book, the beauty of this Bible, is that it tells the same story in all these different genres. It does so through poetry and narrative and history and proverbs and explicit letters written to churches in biography as well as in prophecy and apocalypse. And that's what we're going to look at today here in the book of Zechariah. So we want you to know as a church, we want, to know, we want you to know why we're preaching through this uh, pretty confusing, kind of trippy Old Testament book of the Bible. And today we're going to do that. We're going to preach through a couple of visions that we see in Zechariah 5. We're going to see the gospel in, in a more veiled way, in a more shadowed type way. But hopefully by the end we're going to see how it directly connects to Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and what that did and what that accomplished. We're going to see that in a book that was written 500 years before Jesus even came on the stage. So today's sermon, we're going to, uh, it's entitled Sin Sent Away. And today we're going to look at a vision, a vision of a, uh, two visions actually, a vision of a flying scroll, and then another vision of uh, a woman in a basket who's the personification of evil and, and uh, she's called wickedness. That's the name she's given. And we're going to see two angels carry this basket away. So another very, very strange, uh, two very strange visions. But in this, we're going to see how God is, is judging evil and sin and how he's taking it away from the land, taking it away from his people. A theme that we actually saw earlier in Zechariah in uh, chapter 3. So we're going to read all of Zechariah 5 today. It'll be uh, up there on the screen. It's also uh, inside your worship folders in that handout as well. Zechariah 5, starting in verse 1. And I lifted my eyes and I saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, so the angel said to Zechariah, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. And then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on the inside. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. And it shall enter the house of the thief and in the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in a basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. All right. <laughs> very confusing, very strange. I remember when I saw that this was the passage I was going to preach, I had a pretty, like, uh, dumbfounded look on my face, I'm sure, because I had 
no idea where we're, what was going on here. So uh, let's, let's summarize this a little bit. Hopefully this will help us as we begin to understand what's going on there. So first of all, the character is Zechariah. So he's the author of this book. He, he's a prophet. He's writing down what he sees. And he is the prophet receiving this vision. Then there's an angel, which is the one that is uh, serving the message. Uh, he's the one serving as the messenger of the vision. He also kind of deciphers it. So Zechariah asks him questions. What's going on here? And, the, and this angel that Zechariah is communicating with uh, kind of deciphers what's going on and, and uh, also is speaking to Zechariah. Then we see a woman who's in a basket. And here it's in Zechariah 5. She's described as the personification of evil. Right? So not a real person, but rather uh, evil wickedness. She's named wickedness. So it's a personification of, of evil and wickedness and sin. And then there's these female angels, these servants of God, who God's, God is using to take evil and wickedness and sin and remove it from the land. So those are kind of the main characters of what's going on. Or to just summarize what is going on in these two visions, essentially this is what's going on. Sin, and it's described here, sin is both against God and sin against man, is being judged by God and then removed and then sent away from God's people, sent away from the land. And in doing so, it's creating a new home for God's people, a new Jerusalem, which is the city where this is taking place. And that's in contrast with their old home or, or where they were just in exile, which is Babylon. Or in here in Zechariah 5, it's called Shinar, which is another name for that. So we can kind of get this. This will help us understand uh, what's, what, what's going on in Zechariah 5. So first, let's look at this first vision, a flying scroll. So, so think a huge billboard with wings on it. I know some of you, when I said that, this is what you're thinking, because it's getting to be lunchtime, and you're very, very hungry. But no, so, so think essentially of a, a billboard that's flying, right? So this, this scroll is described as being 30 feet by 50 feet. It, it's enormous, and it's coming to, to Zechariah, and on it is a curse from God. So essentially, a flying scroll is just flashing in the sky, telling Zechariah something from God. And this billboard, it's speaking a curse from God against sin. Saying that sin will be dealt with. Sin will be judged, and it will be removed from the land. So we have to remember the context of Zechariah. So uh, long story short, God's people uh, became very sinful. They rebelled against God. They worshipped other false gods, other idols. They're abusive towards each other. And then after decades and decades of this, God's patience ran out, even after sending prophets to tell them, stop worshiping other idols, stop abusing each other, taking advantage of each other. They were sent away in exile into Babylon. And then after decades of being there, God is slowly and, and finally bringing his people back into the land, back into Israel, back into Jerusalem. So that's, that's the setting of what is going on. So after decades of being far away from God in, in, a, in a foreign country, being oppressed by the Babylonians, they are being brought back to Israel, being brought back to Jerusalem. And in this warning, in this curse on this flying billboard, God's both warning his people against falling back into the same sin that got them exiled, as well as he's doing something new. He's promising that he is going to deal with that sin. So it's both a warning 
as well as a promise that he's going to take care of it. Verse 4 we read says, God saying, I will send it out. The sin that's among you, the sin that led you to being exiled from your city, Jerusalem being sacked, the temple being destroyed, that sin I'm going to remove from you. I'm going to remove it from the land. And in this message of the flying scroll that God warns his people about, he tells them the great destructiveness of sin. He uses this powerful word picture of sin consuming and destroying things, even things that are incredibly powerful and indestructible like timber and stone. And God is telling them here that that sin, the, the, the rules God gave his people, it's not just arbitrary. It's not just he kind of said, okay, uh, this food is going to be unclean and it's going to be sinful for you to eat, and this food is going to be good. Like he kind of has this like little thing where he spins the arrow and it lands on, okay, shellfish, can't eat that, that's going to be sin, but lucky, luckily, you know, strawberries weren't or something like that. God's, God, his laws, and when he's describing sin, it's not just kind of made up, it's not just arbitrary, but rather God knows us as our creator. He knows what will harm us. And he's reminding his people, sin is destructive. Sin is bad for you. Sin's going to hurt you. You're designed to worship me and worship me only, and you're going to thrive when you do that. But when you worship false gods, when you worship fake idols, it's going to hurt you. That's why I'm telling you not to do this. You're going to be most satisfied in me. And he knows that if we, we lie towards each other and steal from each other and hurt each other and use and abuse each other, that's going to be bad for us. So God is reminding his people of the destructiveness of sin that led them to be exiled into Babylon. And he reminds his people that sin, it's not just something to take lightly or to shrug off or to kind of forget because, hey, we're back in the land. Everything's good again. But he reminds them, this is what just got your city destroyed and your temple destroyed and you sent off into a foreign land, many of your loved ones killed, and it destroys your soul as well. It breaks your relationship with God. So in this curse we see on this flying scroll, we see both the, the destructiveness of sin and God also defines sin. He also tells them that sin is not just sinning against other humans, but it's also sinning against God. God uses two sins kind of to symbolically represent the entire law. So sins that are both vertical, sins against, uh, sins against God, so vertical, as well as horizontal sins against other people. So he uses this sin about uh, of, of stealing, about being a thief as symbolic or as a representative of sin against other humans, and he uses uh, the sin of, of swearing falsely in his name as a sin that is against God himself. So here he defines sin. It's not just that you were abusing and hurting and taking advantage of other Israelites, other people from your own family, your own tribe. It's not just that you are worshiping false gods and sinning against me. Those are both parts of sin. But ultimately, all sin is sin against God himself. If you know the story of, of King David in the Bible, maybe the, the greatest king in all of Israel's history, yet he was an incredibly flawed person. If you know his story, you know that at the end of his reign, he, he, he takes his friend's wife. And he sleeps with her, he impregnates her, and then to try to kind of cover up his, his sin, he tries to get his friend to come back and sleep with 
his friend's wife, but, but she won't. And so then he knows that his secret's going to be revealed. He knows his sin is going to be revealed. So he kills his friend and then takes his friend's wife as his own. So David, in an incredible way, sinned against other humans, right? In a despicable, horrible way, he sinned against his friend and against his friend's wife. Yet, listen to how he describes his sin. In Psalm 51, he writes, he says this, right after being confronted about these sins that I just described. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from sin. So real quick, those words, uh, sin, iniquity, transgression, more or less, they're all synonymous. They all mean sin. So when you see transgressions, when you see iniquity, that's what that means. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Verse 4, against you, God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So David here rightly realizes that his sin definitely was against his friend and his friend's wife. But ultimately, all sin is against God. All sin is committed as, as an act of, of treason and rebellion against God. He says in, in, in verse 4 there, against you and you alone have I sinned. Which is crazy, right? Because if you're reading the story, you're like, no, you, you actually didn't worship a false god. You didn't actually bow down to a, a statue of stone, David. You sinned against your friend. You killed him. You took his wife. You sinned against people. But he rightly realizes that ultimately all of our sin is an act of rebellion against God himself. Also notice, too, how David describes himself. He correctly realizes that his problem is not just that he did a few horrible, horrible deeds. But in verse 5, he acknowledges that he was born into sin. That even in his conception, he had a sinful nature that was a part of him. Not that he was as sinful as he could be. He's not saying every, every possible chance I got to sin, I did it. But rather like a disease inside of him that would eventually destroy him. His sin was a part of him. It was a part of his nature. And he needed a cure. So in this very first vision, God uses these two sins to represent all of sin. Strictly reminding his people not to return to their sin and idolatry that led them into exile. And he also promises that he's going to judge it. He's going to take care of it. So that's great and scary news, right? It's great news because these people as well as us, we know that evil surrounds us. We turn on the news. We have broken relationships in our lives. We've been sinned against. And so when God says, I'm going to show up and I'm going to remove wickedness and evil and sin from among you, that's great news, right? That's liberating news. That's hopeful news but it's also bad news. It's also scary news because we know that evil is not just out there in the bad guys. We know our own hearts. We know our past. We know what we're tempted with. And we know that our sin is inside of us. It's wrapped around our DNA and embedded deep in our hearts. So this first vision, the, the message behind the flying scroll is both one of condemnation as well as one of hope. Let's look at the second vision. So a woman in a basket. So the second vision sees a woman 
that's in this, in this basket. Remember, this is all, it's, it's a vision. It's symbolic. It's metaphorical. She is called the, the personification of evil, of sin. She's, she's given the name wickedness. And it says that all the iniquities in the whole land are inside this basket. So some, com- some commentators think that this, uh, this embodiment of wisdom or this of, of evil, this personification of evil, is actually uh, Asherah, which is one of, one of the gods that Israel mainly worshipped when they were falling away from the true God. So what got them led to being banished and, and exiled and oppressed and sent to Babylon, one of those gods that they were worshipping, Asherah, is a, a female god and is probably being pictured in this basket. So essentially what's happening, happening in uh, this vision is God is he's telling his people, he's saying, remember, remember this false god. Remember this god that tempted you and lured you away from me. This god that brought about, this false god that brought about great destruction and pain and death of your loved ones and exile and oppression. Remember that god? I'm both going to deal with that false god. I'm going to judge it and I'm going to take it away from you. I'm going to send away this evil. I'm going to remove this temptation and this, this evil slave driver that was overpowering your soul. So we see that God is not just telling his people to stop sinning. He's not just saying, get back to the Ten Commandments, guys. But he's also telling them to stop worshiping false gods. He's doing that in the first vision, but in the second vision, he repeats something he said earlier in Zechariah. Back in Zechariah 3, if you were here a few weeks ago, he said, I will remove all the iniquity of the land in a single day. So God promises multiple times now in Zechariah, he promises himself to send away evil, wickedness, and to send away sin from his people. He doesn't say, get back to the Ten Commandments. He doesn't say, offer more animal sacrifices. He doesn't say, clean up or else. Rather, he says, I'm going to step in. I'm going to clean you up. I'm going to one. I'm going to be the one that's going to remove sin, all iniquity, all wickedness from the land. And as God's people were hearing this promise, as God's people were hearing about this vision, they were both thinking back and they were thinking forward. As they see this, this, this word picture, this kind of strange vision going on, immediately they're thinking backwards and they're thinking forwards. They're looking backwards because they're, they're remembering their own history as a nation, something that was done all throughout, or that was supposed to be done all throughout Israel's history. Back before their exile, when Israel was a powerful nation, and God gave them the law, what they were supposed to do, is on the Day of Atonement, they were supposed to gather together as a nation, and the priest would offer a sacrifice of a lamb on behalf of all of Israel, and then he'd take a goat. Leviticus uh, 16 describes, so he'd take, he'd sacrifice a lamb, and then he'd take a goat, starting in verse 20. So speaking of the priest, the priest shall present the live goat, and Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of that live goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel, and all their transgressions, and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat, and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities of itself 
to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. So the priest, he would take his, symbolically, he would take his hands and he would symbolically place all of the sins, all of the iniquity, all the evil that Israel had done in the previous year and put it on to this goat. And that's actually where we got the word or the term scapegoat. So here it says, uh, scapegoat, the, the secret to success is knowing who to blame, right? So that's kind of funny, but it, it's so true. That's actually what that word means. The point of the scapegoat was literally to pass the blame to something else. So God, in, in his law to his people, he's saying, once a year, this is what you're going to do. You're going to take an actual goat, an innocent animal, and symbolically that the priest is going to put all the sins of the entire nation onto this goat by laying their, their hands on top of this goat. And you're going to send it off into the wilderness, symbolically showing that your sins have been forgiven. They've been sent far off, never to be seen again. So as Israel is listening to Zechariah's vision, and they hear, about it, uh, they hear about iniquity and sin being removed from the land, being taken away by God, they're looking back and they're remembering, wow, this looks a lot like the Day of Atonement and the scapegoat. This goat that takes all the sin of the nation away. But this vision wouldn't just make the Israelites look back. It would also make them look forward, wondering, how is God going to do this again? He's promising to do the same type of thing but again, in an even greater and more powerful and more permanent type of way. How is he going to take away the sin of all of his people? How is he going to remove their iniquity in a single day, like we saw back in Zechariah 3? But the problem with the scapegoat is that it didn't last, right? It was supposed to happen every single year. And it worked, right, for that moment when it happened, but within days or for sure weeks or probably even with just within hours or minutes of this ceremony actually happening, there was more sin back in the hearts, back in the camp, back in the nation of God's people. It just lasted for a while. So the question that they'd be asking is, how God is going to do this? And that question lingered for 500 years. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. And before he starts any of his public ministry, before he does miracles or teaching, or before he becomes really well-known, he shows up in the wilderness, and there's this other guy, John the Baptist. And he's called that because he's baptizing people. And he's saying, the kingdom of God is near. Repent, and there's someone coming after me who's much greater than me. So Jesus shows up to John the Baptist, who's baptizing people in the wilderness. So before Jesus can do any miracles, before he can do any teachings, before he can heal people, this is how Jesus is announced. So if you read the Gospel of John, which is one of the, the four historical biographies of Jesus, the first time we see Jesus, this is how he's described. We read this earlier today, actually. John 1.29. The next day he, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And that's how Jesus is introduced in the Gospel of John, as the fulfillment not just of Zechariah 5 and Zechariah 3, but also the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement, 
as he's coming as the ultimate scapegoat who's going to take the sins of the world away. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 1 Peter 2.24, so written after Jesus' death and resurrection, looks back at Jesus and his death and resurrection and says this is how he accomplished being our scapegoat, being the ultimate one who removes sin from people. 1 Peter 2.24 says, speaking of Jesus, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on a tree on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. It's by his stripes that we are healed. So it's on the cross where Jesus fulfilled the role of the scapegoat. He took all of our sins onto himself, just like the goat. And in his death, he took that sin far away from us, never to be sin again, deep into the wilderness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 also speaks about this, saying, For our sake, God made him, God made Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin. So Jesus was innocent, just like the scapegoat was an innocent animal. Jesus was also innocent. He knew no sin. He was perfect. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So just like Israel, an innocent animal, the sin was placed on that innocent animal and sent away. That sin never to be, sin, or to never be seen again. And the people, God's people, what did they receive? They receive forgiveness of sin. They, they become righteousness. They become righteous after this happens. And their sin is gone, never to be seen again. So what God's doing here in Zechariah 5, in these very strange kind of cryptic uh, visions, he's taking his people, he's bringing them back to the land, back to Jerusalem, and he's giving them hope as well as warning them. He's giving them hope that he's going to solve the problems, that he's going to do something like the scapegoat, but on a much greater, permanent, eternal, spiritual level. But he's also warning them against sin, against idolatry, against falling back in to the same type of stuff, the same type of rebellion that got them exiled. But we know from history that this didn't actually fully come into pass, right? So Zechariah is written 500 years before Jesus, when Jesus shows up on, on, uh, in this story, right, Jerusalem's still full of sin. Sin has not been completely removed from God's people, from Jerusalem. So even though we know that it was beginning to happen and starting to happen in some ways, we know that the fulfillment of Zechariah 5 and Zechariah 3 does not come just in Israel moving back to the actual land, to the actual Jerusalem, but rather Jesus in his life, and his death and his resurrection fulfill this prophecy, as well as point ahead to a time when this really would happen. Zechariah 5 is pointing ahead to a true and better scapegoat that will remove our sins by taking them on himself and for those sins never to be seen again. Zechariah 5 is pointing ahead to a true and better removal of the basket of sin and wickedness and evil, and to remove it from the world. And it's pointing not just to a Jerusalem that was created in 500 B.C., or when Jesus showed up, literally, in the, in the very first century, 
but rather Zechariah 5 is pointing ahead to a new Jerusalem, a better Jerusalem, a better city, a better place where God really well do what he promised to do in Zechariah 3 and Zechariah 5 as well. A true and better Jerusalem, a true and better city created by God wiped completely clean from sin and death and evil and wickedness and suffering. So the visions we're seeing in Zechariah 5 are pointing ahead. They're fulfilled by Jesus' death and resurrection, and they'll be fully realized or come fully, we'll experience them fully at the end of time when Christ returns, when Jesus returns to judge the world and fully and finally destroy our enemies of, of Satan and sin and evil and death, and through that recreate and redeem and restore the heavens and the earth. So when we read the very end of the Bible, the last few chapters of the Bible, we have lots of similar language to what we're seeing in Zechariah 5 here. When we read Revelation 21 and 22, the last two books of the Bible, we see a new Jerusalem. A Jerusalem not created by returning Israelites that are building up a, a city and a temple, but rather a new Jerusalem that is built by God, that is created by him. That's coming down from his presence, radiating his glory, and completely sin-free. It's a garden city. It, it's described as paradise. A return to Eden. A return to, way, a return to the way that it was supposed to be. But even better. And just like in our visions today, God promises that this new Jerusalem, for, for those in this room who are Christians today, our final and eternal city and world, in it all the wickedness will be gone. All the evil will be gone. All pain and suffering and destruction will be gone. There will be no sin. So John, the same guy that wrote uh, the book of John that, that we just read that describes Jesus as the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world, at the end of his life, he has another vision, a vision that's very similar to Zechariah. And he writes the book of Revelation, and he receives a clearer vision, an even better vision than in Zechariah 5 that's still pretty veiled, still pretty confusing. But in John's vision about Jerusalem, in Revelation 21, we read, And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of, of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for these former things have passed away. So for those today who believe in Jesus Christ, who trust in him as our ultimate scapegoat, as our ultimate one who takes the penalty of our sin and removes it from us through his death and resurrection, that is our future. What we just described, what we just read in Revelation 21, that new Jerusalem, that new heaven and new earth, recreated, restored by God Almighty, that is our future. That is our destination. For those of us who put our trust in Jesus, that's our hope. The new Jerusalem is our destination. It's living in paradise alongside both our Savior and our God. I talk to so many of you throughout the week. I read your, 
communication cards, I get emails. And for most of us, at least sometimes, this verse 4 here does not describe our reality. Sadly, it does not describe our reality. Your eyes are often filled with tears. Death is often surrounding you. Right now, many of you are mourning and crying. And suffering and pain are literally, literally your reality that you're dealing. But this is also where Zechariah 5 gets so real and so practical for us. When life is full of sin, suffering, wickedness, and evil, we long as Christians not just for a temporal or a short relief from it, but we long for the day when God will completely wipe out those things. We rest in the truth that he really has taken our sin away never to be seen again. And we long for his return when he'll fully and finally remove wickedness, remove sin, remove pain and death and suffering from this entire world. So when you're burying your loved ones, let this eternity be your hope. When you're crushed by the weight of your depression and anxiety, long for, the, long for not just temporal relief, for, but for Christ's return and an eternal relief. When you're beat down again and again and again by the same sin that you just never seem to be able to conquer, remind yourself that Jesus took it on himself. He received the penalty that you and I deserve for that sin, and he took away your sins. Far away, never to be seen again. So when you've seen wickedness and evil and sin winning in this world, and you will see that, when you turn on the TV and watch the news or open up Facebook, you will see sin and wickedness winning at times in this world. Rest assured that this will not always happen. God will judge, and he will come and destroy and remove sin from this world. So in our vision today, God takes away the wickedness, and he brings it to a place called Shinar, which is also just another name for Babylon. And also, at the end of the Bible, right next to when it's, uh, John sees a vision of the new Jerusalem, Revelation 18, the destruction of Babylon is described. And in an even more clear way, we see that, that sin and death and wickedness are destroyed in the end. Part of the good news of the gospel, it's not just that Jesus takes away our sins. That's definitely part of it. But also part of the good news is that sin and death are taken care of. And sin and evil in this world, they're not just banished, they're even destroyed. So two things for us today as, as we leave. First, let me speak to Christians. Today, if you are a Christian here today, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, if you've, if you've put your faith in him as a scapegoat who's taken your sin on an innocent goat, far into the wilderness, never to be seen again. If you are a Christian here today, really live and believe like your sin has been taken away from you, never to be seen again. So every time you're tempted to get your identity from what you've done or what you haven't done, the sin you've done or the sin that's been committed against you, stop yourself. Remember this truth right now, this truth about you. Say it out loud. Process this truth with your family members, your roommates, 
your community group, that your sin has been taken away through Jesus. Look ahead to times you know that you're going to be tempted not to believe this. And remind yourself, memorize these verses so that you know when it seems like evil is winning, when sin is ruling in your life, when you're going through pain and suffering. Be equipped to be able to battle those lies with this truth. And when we really believe this, we'll begin to have a humble confidence. When you think about how God feels about you, you'll have a humble confidence. Humble because you know your heart, you know your past, you know what you're still tempted with. Yet at the same time, confident because we know that through Jesus, through the ultimate Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, we can confidently approach God the Father. Sinless. Our sins are gone. They're taken away, never to be seen again, never to be brought up again. You maybe wrestle with a sin you've done or are still committing or a sin that's been done to you, and you think, I can't forget that. Or I keep defining my, myself or my identity through that, through that. But through Jesus Christ, our sins are taken away, never to be seen again, never to be brought up again, never to be uh, a part of your identity of who you are. The great scapegoat, the Lamb of God, has come, and he's taken away your sin if you are a Christian here today. Gloria Furman writes, The gospel keeps me relating to God on the basis of Jesus' perfection, not on the illusions of my religious achievement. Christian, that is your reality here today. Your relation to God is through Jesus' perfection, not through your religious achievement. And if you're here today are not a Christian, great, we're glad you're here. We really are glad that you're here. We want you to be here. We want you to feel welcomed and safe and like you can ask questions and, and wrestle through whether or not the Bible is true and wrestle through who Jesus is. So if you're not a Christian here today, look at what Jesus offers you. He offers this to you today. He wants you here and he wants you to hear this message and he wants you to know that he's inviting you to this. He's telling you today, there's no sin that is unforgivable. Even if you feel like you can't forgive yourself for what you've done, he's telling you today, no sin is unforgivable. Whether it's a sin that you have done or continue to do or sin that's been committed against you, there's always forgiveness in Jesus Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus alone, in his death on the cross for us, as our ultimate scapegoat, our sacrificial lamb, our sins are placed on him and they're taken away, never to be remembered by God. Jesus is our true and greater scapegoat who received the punishment that we deserved because of our sins, and he takes that imperfection, that sin, deep into the wilderness, never to be seen again. Remember David. Remember the Israelites. That's who God's speaking to. Not perfect people, not great people. So if you can kind of raise your hand and say, yeah, I'm kind of like Israel that sinned against other people and kind of worshiped false gods and kind of like David, whether I've actually done those things or whether in my heart, those are the people that God is speaking this forgiveness to. So if he can forgive them, he can forgive you today. So if you're not a Christian, Jesus offers this to you 
today, a new identity, not based on what you've done, but based on what he has done. And secondly, know that God will bring ultimate and final justice to this world, that evil and wickedness will not get away, and that he will completely remove sin from this world. So when you see and when you experience all this kind of stuff, and you will, live long enough and you will, you will see sin and evil win for a time. And it will feel very discouraging. And you'll experience it as well. When that happens, when you see it or when it happens to you or when you're a part of it, know that God sees it too. He's not apathetic. He's not different. He's not indifferent to seeing all the sin and evil in this world. And he promises that he will take care of it, that it will not always be among us, that he hates it even more than you and I hate it, and he promises to remove it once and for all. He wants you to know this. Church, God wants us to know this, that he hates evil and wickedness as well. And as a loving father, he's telling you, it's going to be okay. It really is going to be okay. It doesn't feel like it right now, but in the end, I will make it right. He wants his people to have hope. He wants us to have eternal perspective. And he wants us to know both his power, that he will defeat sin, as well as his love for us, because he wants to do this for us. He wants to remove our sin. He wants to give us Jesus' righteousness. So believe this. You want something to do as you leave here today? Believe this. Work hard at believing this. Again, say it out loud. Memorize verses that speak explicitly about this. Because you know you're going to be confronted with evil, confronted with sin. You know you're going to forget. You know you're going to be discouraged. So remember this. Come back to this truth again and again when you're tempted. Have people in your life that will speak this truth into your life. When work is horrible, when you've been sinned against, when you experience and see death and sin and disease and destruction. So as a church, let us speak this truth to each other when we go through sin and suffering and pain and death. And know that this is a hope God wants us to know about. Right? He tells us in Zechariah, he tells us in the book of Revelation, church, it's going to get hard. Life is tough. But don't worry. And in the end, I will take care of it. And if you're not a believer today, he says, I want to take care of it for you. I want to forgive your sin. I want to give you a new identity. I want to clean I want to clean you. I want to remove what's been done to you and what you've done. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this powerful passage in Zechariah 5 that's confusing, that's, that's, that's hard to understand. But when we read it, it in the context of, of all the Bible, we see a picture of a scapegoat. We see a sacrificial lamb. We see, God, you taking sin far, far away. We see a new Jerusalem, a new city of God, a new world being restored and redeemed and recreated, and you being a part of that, and you inviting us into that. So God, we pray that we would believe this truth, that in Christ, sin can be forgiven, that we can have a new identity, that we can be washed clean. Help us to put our hope in that truth and in your final victory over Satan, sin, and death. And in our new home with you, Revelation 21 speaks 
about God living with his people. No longer are you going to be far off, but you're going to be living among your people. We long for that day. We pray that that day will come soon, even more than we pray for relief from our anxiety and depression right now, or suffering we're going through, or, or sin that we're wrestling with, or evil that's overcoming us and, and winning in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, even more than, than temporal uh, releases from those things. God, we as a church, we long for your second coming. Help us when we don't long for that as well. Give us eternal perspective. Give us hope that comes through the gospel. Pray this in your powerful, saving, cleansing, identity-changing name, Jesus. Amen.